Well, thank you so much. Thank you, praise team, our choir, and all of you. And let me just correct a date on CF Poe. It's not on Thursday the 25th, but it's on Wednesday the 25th. And then I've also been handed a note that Northwest Shows Community College, I have a CUF poll in front of the auditorium at 9.15, 9.15 to 9.30. And so you that are going to Northwest Shows, Phil Camel Campus, is that right? Phil Camel Campus, uh, meet in front of the poll at the auditorium. And uh, you're gonna have a CUF poll, but not, don't meet there Thursday or you'll miss it, meet there Wednesday. And let me, let me mention this. Adults, if you have free time, run by at 7 o'clock up here uh, because uh, you're invited and uh, it'll be a way to support our children, our youth, and then our college students. If you have time to go out to Northwest shows, I'm sure they would, uh, would mind you being around that flagpole. If you brought your Bibles, turn to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5 familiar chapter we've read perhaps so many times. We'll look at Matthew chapter 5. We'll look at one verse as I share with you a sermon entitled, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Matthew chapter 5 and we'll look at verse 1. You may have to listen in a hurry this morning because I have a lot that I have to say in a short time. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. Verse 2. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Heavenly Father, thank you for an opportunity we've had to come and worship this morning. Thank you for the good singing, singing of hymns and praise hymns, praise songs. And Lord, just to be able to be with each other, but to be with you. And now as we've opened your word, allow your Holy Spirit to come and be our teacher and our guide. Be with me, I pray, this morning. Help me, I pray, in regards to the words that I need to say, the right spirit to say them in. Give me the recall that I need. And, Father, I pray that uh, there won't be any distractions, anything that will take our mind, our eyes, our hearts off of you. Thank you for everything that you've done for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. We make this prayer in his name. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 3 was our text. In verse 1, the Bible says, and seeing the multitudes. So first of all, seeing the multitudes. He went up into a mountain. Verse 1, first Jesus loved multitudes. He loved multitudes. He had compassion on them. He had compassion on them when they were sick. He had compassion on them when they were hungry. Or in any other type of need, he had compassion on the multitude. Whether the people were rich or poor, it didn't matter with Jesus. Whether they were healthy, whether they were sick, it didn't matter with Jesus. Whether they were emotionally stable or whether they were demon-possessed, whether they were powerful or whether they were insignificant, whether they were ignorant, whether they were educated, Jesus had compassion on them. The Bible says that he had compassion on them, meaning that he loved them. 
He was attracted to all kinds of people because he loved them. And not only did he love them, but he loves us. He loves you. He loves the whole world. For God so loved the world. That's an agape love that he gave. Agape love is a love that gives. It's the love that Jesus had for us. It's the love that God had for us that he sent his son Jesus to give him to us as a sacrifice for our sins. It was a love that Jesus had for us and that he died for our sins. It's that agape love. It's that self-sacrificing love. So he loved the multitudes. So he had the multitudes. Then you have a mountain. That's the sanctuary. That's where he preached this sermon, preached on a mountain. When you study the Bible, you'll find there are a lot of mountains, great mountains of importance, life-changing things, uh, life-changing uh, things happened on mountains. If you remember, Elijah had a life-changing experience there on a mountain as fire came down, as he was uh, confronting the prophets of Baal, and uh, a fire came down while he was on the mountain, consumed the sacrifice. You had uh, the fire on the mountain with Elijah. You had, the, you had Moses on the mountain where Moses received the Ten Commandments. And then most famous of all, you have Mount Calvary or Golgotha where Jesus died on the cross on that mountain for my sins, for your sins, for the entire world's sins. So he had this sanctuary place. It was a mountain. As far as we know, it was just simply a large hill, kind of an elevated place. Uh, as far as we know, it had no name until Jesus preached there. And what was simply a mountain became the mountain known, sanctified, set apart because of the presence of the Lord and referred to from time to time now in Scripture as uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And so it has a special name now, a place where Jesus preached this very important sermon. And so for centuries, this traditional site, has been called the Mount of Beatitudes. And so you have this multitude and have this sanctuary, and if you're uh, the mountain, and then notice it says the Bible said that he sat down, and that's really important. Jesus was looked on to be a rabbi, uh, a teacher. He was referred to as a rabbi, a teacher. And if a rabbi spoke, if he if the rabbi was standing or walking, what he said would be considered informal. It would be considered unofficial. But if the rabbi sat down, then you need to listen up because that was considered very author authoritative and it was considered to be official. And so notice what Jesus did. He called his disciples along with the other people that were with him and, they, and he sat down. And it's going to be real important what he said. So after he sat down, he sat down. Let's think about the word set. He sat down. Even today when we speak of professors at different universities, <coughs> holding this, uh, we speak of them holding a chair position, uh, an important position. He's the chair of psychology or he holds the chair of sociology a chair of a university, uh, simpli uh, just signifying of, of an honored position from which they teach. And so we even refer to that sitting position today for teachers. When the Roman Catholic Pope gives an official pronouncement, he speaks what is known as ex cathedra, 
ex-cathedral means he speaks from a chair, sits down in a chair and makes his delivery. And so when Jesus sat down to deliver the Sermon on the Mount, he spoke from his divine chair with absolute authority over his kingdom, over the universe, his universe. And uh, it'd be an evangelistic sermon. Now notice, as you read these Beatitudes, and I hope you'll do that later for the sake of time, but each of these Beatitudes begin with the word blessed. The word blessed, the Greek word is uh, makarios. Makarios is where we get the English word happy. It means happy, it means uh, blissful. Happy or blissful. So when the Bible uses the word happy, it's talking about it's not a secular happiness like people look for today, but it speaks of a happiness that is deeper than just an emotional type happiness. It goes deep within our soul. And so we need to understand it's, uh, it's to have happiness that you really can't explain. It's not because of a circumstance that you're happy, but it's something that's embedded in you, this biblical happiness. And so... Because of this happiness, uh, this, this happiness is not superficial. This happiness is not just emotional. This happiness is not controlled by circumstances. But this happiness is placed in us by the Holy Spirit, and it's deep within us. So regardless what we're going through, we can experience this type of happiness and this blissfulness. But only God's people can do that. This happiness that the Bible speaks of is the happiness that's rooted in the core of our being. It's the, it's the spiritual man. It's rooted in the spiritual man. It's rooted in our spirit. So the word happy teaches us that in Jesus Christ we can have contentment in our soul that's out of the reach of adverse circumstances. Regardless of what's happening to us in our lives, we can experience this type of joy, spiritual joy, the spiritual happiness. Now, remember, you'll never find this happiness seeking happiness. You'll never find happiness seeking for happiness. Happiness is always a byproduct. You remember the Lord said it's, it's more blessed, it's more happy to give than to receive. And so the happiness comes not from the receiving, but the happiness comes from the act of giving. And so the point is the person who is blessed by their giving, wasn't seeking happiness, um, wasn't seeking happiness by their giving. They were just generous, and through their act of giving, they experienced this blessedness. They experienced this happiness. They experienced this blissfulness. So it is true that it's more blessed, blessed, happy to give than it is to receive. So each one of these Beatitudes, first of all, begins with this word, blessed or happy happy. And then these Beatitudes show us that God's definition of happiness is different than our world's definition of happiness. I like what John Phillips said. He said this, great favorite theologian of mine. He's died a couple of years ago. It says, in the following verses is the Lord's recipe for a happy life, a happy death, and a happy eternity. Speaking of the Beatitudes. So pay real close attention if you want to have a happy life, if you want to have a, here on earth, if you want to have a happy death at the end, if you want to have a happy eternity, pay real close attention to this first 
Beatitudes. Now, there are three general principles that you need to remember about Beatitudes, or the Beatitudes. And I'm going to list those three principles. First of all, these qualities of character are for all believers. What we read in the Beatitudes are for all believers, not just for a few, not for the lost, but for believers. So these Beatitudes are believer, uh, for believers. Number two, a general principle to remember, they are a product of the Holy Spirit's work in our life. They're a product of the Holy Spirit's work in our life. These, these attitudes show the difference between someone that's lost and, and someone who is saved. And then third, the character traits, these character traits show us the necessity of a new birth. Unless you're born again, you won't have these in your life, okay? You won't seek after righteousness until you're full. You just won't do it. Until you're saved, these won't be found in your life. So the point is, unless you are born again, these spiritual qualities will never be evident in your life. And so we want to look this morning at the first beatitude about spiritual poverty. This first beatitude is about spiritual poverty. And again, sermon title I just listed as, Blessed are the poor in spirit. First of all, I'm going to share with you the misapplication of this beatitude, the misapplication of the beatitude. There's only two points. All that other was just an introduction. So we'll have the misapplication of the beatitude. First of all, this is not speaking about material poverty. <clears throat> Blessed are the poor in spirit. When he, talk, when he uses the word poor, this is not talking about physical, uh, this is not talking about um, um, material poverty. The Bible says that we're, we're always going to have the poor with us. We're not to neglect the poor. We're to be good to the poor. We don't need to mistreat the poor. But we're all going to have the poor around us. They'll be with us. But this attitude is not, it's not about financial poverty. Uh, when Jesus used the word poor here, it's not speaking of financial poverty. Um, you know, it, it's not saying that, that we should be weak, cowardly people. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We're not to have this weak, cowardly spirit. It's not what he's teaching here. And he's not referring to someone who lacks drive or lacks ambition or some type of spiritual enthusiasm. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He's not talking about someone who's lacking drive or enthusiasm in their spiritual life. And so first you have this misapplication of spiritual poverty. But what's the meaning of the Beatitudes? Roman numeral two, if you want to jot that down. You have the misapplication. It's not about material poverty. But what's the meaning of it? And the best way to explain the meaning of it is just to use the words of the parable. First of all, it can just be found in the choice of the words God used. The first being blessed, blessed, are the poor in spirit, blessed, word meaning sincere, blessed, happy, happy, this sincere joy, happy, it means someone that has a sincere, godlike joy, it's a joy that's self-contained, it's a joy that's unchanging, it's, it's unchanging with the day-to-day -day circumstances in our lives, blessed, or happy, 
are those who are poor in spirit, happy, a joy that's been changed by the power of God. Happy are those who are poor in spirit. So a person, you know, that's experienced a regenerated life by God is, is a blessed person. They're a happy person. But there's another word for blessed. Blessed, you have happy, you have joy. Blessed are, he uses the word poor. Blessed, and then he uses the word poor. This is a word the Bible uses for uh, uh, the word poor to uh, describe someone. You know, at times you'll read the Bible and it'll use the word poor and it describes someone that's less, less f- favorable. Uh, let me give you an illustration. The widow who went to the treasurer, went to give her, her treasure, and she went to the treasury at the, at the temple and she walks in and the only thing she had was a mite. We refer to it as the widow's mite in that story about the widow, the poor widow. And that word poor there is referring to someone who is less favorable. They, they don't have much uh, property. They don't have much material possession. They don't have much money. And so this widow could only give a mite, this little small coin. So that's, that's one way the word is used. But here... It, it's, it's, it's not the word used to describe that widow, that described that widow, because she had something. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The meaning of that word refers to someone with abject poverty. They have absolutely nothing. They're, they're, blessed are the poor in spirit. They have, they have nothing at all. Nothing at all. The word speaks of object poverty. They have absolute nothing. Now, when you think of this, when you think of the Beatitudes, remember this, and it'll all tie in. The Beatitudes are not in random order, but the Beatitudes have been placed in a divine order by God. And this first one is very important. This one is first. The others build upon this one. So the point is, before you can be full of the Spirit, you have to be empty in your life. You have to be be in abject poverty in your spirit. The Bible says, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be you filled with the Spirit. So before you can be full, you must be empty. Emptied of all human effort. Empty all human effort must cease if you're going to live a righteous life. You can't depend on something that you've put in your life in order to have eternal life. You have to empty yourself of all self-righteousness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So when the Bible speaks about being poor in spirit, it means a person must understand they have absolutely no righteousness at all. You're poor, you're in Abject poverty. You not have just one little bit of righteousness like the widow had one might, but you have absolutely no righteousness of your own to account for your salvation. You have nothing to commend you to God, nothing at all. And suddenly you understand, you know, I didn't become a sinner. I am a sinner. I was born that way. And so whatever self-righteousness 
I have, the Bible says, it's like a filthy leper's rag. It means nothing. Your goodness means nothing. It does not commend you in any way whatsoever to God. Nothing. It's someone who understands that all of my self-effort to please God falls flat. My self-righteousness falls flat in my effort to please God. I am poor in spirit. I have abject poverty in regards to self-righteousness in obtaining my salvation. So the point is, this is a quality that a believer continues to possess even after they become saved. I, I don't serve the Lord to be saved, but I serve the Lord because I am saved, because I know my righteousness are as filthy rags. They don't do anything for the Lord as far as commend my salvation. And so we constantly have this sense of need. Lord, I, I'm poor in spirit today. I have, I have nothing in my life but Jesus Christ that's worth anything. How can you be filled with the Holy Spirit unless you're spiritually poor? How can you be filled with the Holy Spirit if, you're, if your life is already filled with yourself? How can you be filled with the Holy Spirit if your life is, is already filled with pride? How can you be filled with the Holy Spirit if your life is already filled with opinions? How can you be filled with the Holy Spirit if your life is already filled with self-interest? How can you be filled with the Holy Spirit if your life is already filled with self-concern? You have to experience object spiritual poverty. I have nothing that will commend my salvation to God. Nothing. The point is the Bible teaches us that we must come to a place in our lives that we have to understand that the only righteousness that we have is the righteousness that is in Jesus Christ. I don't care how good you are. That's going to be really sad one day because there's going to be a lot of good people in hell because they refuse to empty themselves. They were not poor in spirit. You see, John uh, 16, uh, if you will listen to John chapter 16, I'm going to read verse 11. It may be on the screen. Look and see. I believe we will. John 16, uh, verse 7. Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Now he's speaking of the Holy Spirit. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin. This is what the Holy Spirit's going to do. He's going to reprove the world of sin and righteousness and of judgment of sin because they believe not in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. So the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, I'm going away. I'm sending the Holy Spirit. This is what he's going to do. First, he's, going to, he's, he, he's in the world and he's convicting the world. He's reproving the world. You see, the, the way you get saved is by the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts you of the need of a Savior. The Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin. Nobody gets saved but by the will of the Spirit. You never get saved by the will of the flesh. Look at John chapter 1. Let me go back there just for a moment. 
You never get saved. Nobody gets saved by the will of the flesh. Chapter 1, look at verse 10. The Bible says, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not, speaking of Jesus. He came into his own, his own received him not. But as many, verse 12, as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Verse 13, which were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So it's real simple. Nobody gets saved by the will of the flesh. The Holy Spirit draws you to Christ. And so we're drawn by the Spirit to the cross, to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he convicts us. The word convicts means he convinces us. The word convicts, convince, describes. It's kind of like a, uh, it's kind of like a courtroom scene. And you have this prosecuting attorney, which is the Holy Spirit. And he gets the guilty party on the witness stand, which is me. And I'm a sinner by nature. And I'm a sinner by choice. I was born this way. And so he becomes so persuasive, convincing me that I'm a sinner and there's no hope without Jesus Christ, that he elicits admission of guilt from me being a sinner. I remember when I was 11 years old and the Holy Spirit convicted me. You need Jesus. You're going to die without Christ. You're not going to heaven. You're going to hell. And it came a point to where he convicted me. He convinced me to the point that I said, I'm lost. There's no hope without Jesus Christ. So biblically speaking, the Spirit of God brings us to the end of ourself where we say, I'm a sinner. He convicts of sin. He convicts of sin. Now, he doesn't convict of sins to be saved. He convicts of sin. Every time you see the singular sin in the Bible, it refers to the Adamic nature of man. He convicts of sin. He convicts me that I'm a sinner by nature. When he convicts of sins, those, those are, or that is the outcome of me being a, uh, uh, an, having an Adamic nature. But he convicts of sin. And then I realize I'm separated from God. And even when I do good, it's not good because I'm a sinner and all of my goodness are as filthy rags. And so the Bible says he convinces me that I don't have one thing in my life that will earn my, my, own, my, righteous, my right standing with God. And I confess that to him. Why? Because the Holy Spirit comes into the world to convict of sin. Then he, he convicts of righteousness. He convinced me of righteousness. You know what he convinced in regards to righteousness? I don't have any. All of my righteousness are as filthy rags. He convinced me of that. And there's none righteous. The Bible says no, not one. There's no good people in this room. There's no righteous, none righteous. We're all sinners. And then he convinces me that the only thing that I have that would benefit me would be the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so the Holy Spirit convinces me of sin, convinces me of righteousness, then he convinces me of judgment. I'm a sinner, I have no righteousness, and I'm going to be judged and to prove it because he's already judged the devil and he's created a place called hell for the devil and those that follow him. So what do I do when the Holy Spirit convicts me I come to a place to where I say I'm empty I have no righteousness 
if I'm going to heaven, I have to, I have to, my life has to change. I mean, I'm full of unrighteousness. Heaven is a righteous place, so how can I get there? I have no righteousness. I'm empty. I have no righteousness. I have no goodness. I'm lost. I have, I'm without hope. I need righteousness that only Jesus Christ can provide. And then I'm facing his judgment. But Jesus died on the cross in my place. He shed his blood to pay for my sin debt. God forsook him so the Lord could satisfy his wrath and the body of his son on that tree there at Golgotha. And for me, when I was compelled by the Holy Spirit, I believed, I turned to Jesus Christ in faith, repented of my sins, I gave my sins to Christ. He gave his righteousness to me. Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore being justified by faith, I have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So God justifies me. He declares me righteous on the basis of my faith. And for the rest of my life, this quality of righteousness should be in my life, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So there's a misapplication and there's a spiritual meaning just by simply using the words of Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So here's the point. Salvation starts with this verse. An emptying of oneself of self-righteousness and crying out to God for his righteousness. Now today, there are some of you perhaps depending on your righteousness to go to heaven. And in your own eyes and eyes of others, you're a good person. But according to the Bible, according to God's word, there's none good, not the first one. And the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin that we have this Adamic nature and we need someone's righteousness to go to heaven besides ours, and that's Jesus Christ. So today you've been placed on the witness stand. And your job is to convince yourself that you have righteousness good enough to go to heaven while at the same time the Holy Spirit's responsibility is to convince you that you're not righteous at all and you need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so the Holy Spirit, this heavenly prosecutor, convicts you, convinces you that you're a sinner, you have this Adamic nature and you don't have the righteousness that it takes to go to heaven. And then he convinces you of judgment if you're a sinner and you have no righteousness and one day you're going to be judged. But then the good news is if you're convinced of that guilt before God, then you believe that Jesus will save you and turn to him in faith, that he came and died on the cross, he was buried and he arose again. And in your desperation and your plea, his mercy and grace reaches down and forgives a sinner like me and will forgive a sinner like you and take your sins and give you his righteousness. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven.
You'll never go to heaven without emptying your life of your own self-righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for an opportunity to hear your word. Father, I pray now for each person here. Thank you for helping us to understand this very first beatitude. And Lord, help us as Christians, we pray, to magnify the others in our life. Lord, help us to to love like you love. Help us to help us to seek after righteousness, hunger and thirst after righteousness. Help us to be um, help us, Lord, to be poor in spirit and not be self righteous, but Lord, be filled with your righteousness. I pray for every person here this morning and those who have never trusted Christ. I pray, Lord, today as your Holy Spirit convinces them that today they would humble their heart, realize they need a Savior, turn to you, experience your mercy, your grace, as they place their faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, to be their Lord and their Savior. Thank you for what you'll do in this invitation time. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.